I'm Brad Hirschfield, and this is Cracking the Echo Chamber, because there is always more to the story, and because the cracks are not only where the light gets in, but where it shines out into the world. Wisdom, after all, is a two-way street, and this is where we pave that road. And in this particular episode, I'm particularly happy to have with us Emily Shire. Now, it's an interesting thing to welcome Emily, who has a long list of credentials and accomplishments and writing all over the place, but I guess the regular full-time gig, as it were, is the politics editor at Bustle. Yes, that's my full-time gig. And has really spent a fair amount of time covering the news, both political and cultural, but in the last <laughs> week, or month or so, I should say, has become the news, at least in some circles, and that's what brings her with us today. So first, welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. You gave me far too kind uh, kind of an introduction. <laughs> no, no, no. First of all, that's a part of this show. Passion and kindness really can coexist. And one of the reasons we're here is not to get people to check who they are at the door, which will have everything to do with today's conversation, <laughs> um, but to bring all of who you are. Sometimes that's pretty. Sometimes it's less pretty. But never to give up on kindness. Right? Too often, my claim is that in our world, People are forced to choose between kindness and correctness. And while it's not always a false dichotomy, it's a false dichotomy a hell of a lot more often than we've been led to believe. And that really does have everything to do with why you're here. So I guess you would have to tell the story your way, which I'm going to let you do in a second. But for me, and, and Elad is obviously with us here as well, so he's going to jump in at some point. Hello. That's, you know, hear his voice. Um, started with a piece you published in the New York Times, an op-ed piece that got more than a little attention from more than a few areas called Does Feminism Have Room for Zionism? And since you're here, rather than tell your story, why don't you tell us a little bit about what generated that piece, and then we'll get into talking about its substance. You know, in many ways, the the piece uh, has probably been lurking in the back of my mind uh, for quite a while. If we went really far back in the fall of 2015, when I was at the Daily Beast, uh, a colleague of mine reported how at Columbia University, an anti-sexual assault group, No Red Tape, was joining up with uh, pro-BDS groups on campus, which, you know, boycott, divestment, sanctions. They, so it's a movement that at least, then, and I believe so now, explicitly doesn't want Israel to exist as a Jewish state. Uh, and their goal is to punish Israel as much as possible. And also, from my perspective, really go against all notions of freedom of speech and intellectual freedom, because uh, particularly at a university, it's troubling because anyone who gets funding from the Israeli government, any scholars, any academics, aren't supposed to come on campus. Uh, but for me, I found it very interesting and problematic that when a student wrote uh, in the Columbia University newspaper that she cared tremendously about combating sexual assault, but she also supported Israel and was now being forced to choose. Uh, and my colleague, Lizzie Crocker, did a very interesting piece on that. And then shortly thereafter, I had to face a similar concern when a very large uh, feminist academic organization, actually, I believe it's the largest group of feminist historical scholars in North America voted to support the BDS movement. And I got to interview some women. And to be clear, for people who might not know, BDS, Boycott, Divest, and Sanction, which gets described in lots of different ways. So for our purposes, I'm curious, when you talk about BDS, other than saying, yes, Boycott, Divest, and Sanction, what that movement represents to you in your analysis? I mean, to me, it represents... Uh, 
a a completely disproportionate targeting of Israel. I mean, that's I think the larger significance. I think it. I am a Zionist. That's very clear. But even if I weren't, it would bother me on the grounds that I respect intellectual freedom. Uh, I think its aims ultimately hurt, unfortunately, Palestinian people often more than it hurts uh, Israelis, which is which is not the goal of the people <laughs> who support it. I think it really does a terrible. It's just terrible in terms of cultural, intellectual discourse. I mean, so here's one example of it. I'm talking about it a lot in an academic sense, but there was an Israeli group that was invited to perform at the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh, and protesters were ultimately so vocal and insistent on the BDS approach that they were uh, not, they were effectively disinvited. They were told they couldn't perform because it was affecting too much of the overall theater, of, 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 the, of the overall theater festival. And for me, that's that's tragic when a group can't perform you know in this open space uh good so we're going to move as we get through this a little bit more to the fact there are different kinds of objections and they can't all be so readily lumped in together some of them are substantive if one is and to be absolutely clear everyone sitting in the studio today is in one way or another a zionist so that's a substantive issue there's also a legal cultural issue what does it mean to align yourself as i think we all do with freedom of speech and freedom of expression and at what point is commitment to one particular perceived curtailing of it assuming one views the Israel-Palestine conflict that way, does it become an excuse for undermining an overall commitment to freedom of expression, right? When does the cause become so important that the ends justify the means? And I think that's a really important conversation to have because my experience has been that the answer about when the ends justify the means is never as simple as either of the extremes would have us believe, right? There are people say, well, this case, it clearly does. And it seems to me, are you really sure about that? And then there are other people saying, never. The ends never justify the means. And to me, there are times when maybe it does. I want to be clear again, I don't think this is one of them, but I think that's the complexity that has to enter. We kind of, we lob these things at each other. And what made it interesting for me to now kind of bring you back to the writing of this particular piece in the Times was that I experienced reading it as the exact opposite of simply being willing to continue the game of lobbing jargon at each other and to instead invite people to say, hey, wait a second. It is not as simple or simplistic as some people would have us believe. Yeah, I think something, and this is you know, goes back to the issues that have you know, been you know, boiling inside of me for you know, well before uh, the international women's strike, is that I found Zionism to be painted in very broad brushstrokes. I've been reporting on you know, uh, college campuses and the attitudes towards Zionism and, and other issues you know, for the past you know, two or so years. And speaking to students, I realized how often things were brushed into just simply someone is the oppressed and someone is the oppressor. And they like to box everybody into that black and white category. We like our boxes. Yes. And so there was just a total lack of nuance. Um, I mean, I think that's the first part of the problem. Uh, but then once you had that label of colonizer or oppressor, forget it, game over, you lost all support. Um, and so seeing that concern as someone who you know, does identify you know, with a lot of liberal causes, it was very frustrating to see that the new thrust, or at least the most vocal people in a lot of progressive movements, were just quick to to wash away all nuance and group. Okay, so this is the oppressor, this is the victim, and this is how we're going to like chart our whole course. Everything anti-oppressor because we've deemed this person an oppressor 
and it's an oppressor the exact way that um, white Americans oppressed black Americans for centuries. And it's an oppressor in the exact same way that, uh, you know, the straight establishment oppressed LGBT Americans for decades and trying to say that every oppressor is exactly the same and every victim is exactly the same. Once you even put people into those far too broad, uh, totally lacking in nuanced boxes. Great. So now that's everything you bring to this moment. Now we're approaching March 8th. And tell us about March 8th. Tell us what happened and how you then ended up publishing a piece about the challenge of being a feminist and being a Zionist. So, I mean, I, I work for a feminist website and they've been incredibly supportive of me. Uh, and one of the gifts of that is that you have you get to see a lot of discussions going on and what isn't being discussed. I'm also separately on certain listers where I'm in contact with a lot of feminist journalists, a lot of feminist uh, women in the media. Uh, actually, I should say they're not all women, but certainly you know, I'm on different lists and discussion groups. And I realized this issue wasn't being talked about. And so I'd wanted to write a piece. I actually originally meant for it to be a reported piece where I interviewed other other uh, Zionist women about how they were going to approach this. Uh, what changed into maybe more of an op-ed is that I was, I'm was i on this community group and a woman posted, she said, oh my gosh, I'm reading about Rosmea Ode, who was one of the original organizers for the international women's strike. And it was maybe a week before. And she said, I had no idea that she was a convicted terrorist. And I th- think she was expecting the women on our list to be outraged and to jump in and support. Um, and instead, what I saw was that every woman on the list tried to to discount the sources that she was pointing to and say, well, that's not a legitimate source. You've overlooked the fact. And it's true. She has said that she was tortured in her confession. Now, I've spoken to William Jacobson uh, at Cornell. Uh, he's a law professor at Cornell University, uh, and he's researched the case. And what he has pointed out, he he was very clear that he did not want to, he couldn't comment on whether or not she had or hadn't been tortured, but just that the timeline that she has laid out for her confession and being tortured doesn't at all line up to when she actually confessed. So I had my concerns about that. Also, an international Red Cross observer said her case was a completely fair trial. So that's something else to keep in mind. But I think seeing how quickly... And by all accounts, by the way, she put, which was in your piece, that she was an activist and an active leader in the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which not only called for the outright destruction of the state of Israel, but also saw all Jews anywhere in the world who were in any way identified with the state of Israel as legitimate targets for violent, they would say, resistance. I would say, I think you would say, terrorism. So for me, at some level... Whether that happened or not, the idea that no one was able in that one listserv to say, well, wait a second, is there, are we at all troubled by that? Maybe she should be a part of this. Maybe she shouldn't be a part of this. And I wonder at that moment, is the issue even her or is the issue what starts to emerge is, oh, my God, people don't know how to be activists unless they're in total alignment. And is that part of the problem that's going on here? Because what would have happened if people had said, Oh, this is really a problem. Whatever she had, whatever happened, what didn't happen, her version of liberation has called for, maybe she feels bad about it now, I don't know that she's ever said she has, but has called for blowing up babies as a legitimate form of resistance. 
what would have happened if I don't actually care about her? I'm intrigued by all those women, and men too if they were on the list, who found no way to say, no, she can still be a part of this, and we're still going to commit to this even if we don't think she ought to be a part of this. But instead, the response was to whitewash. And so it seems to me that exactly what happened is what happens on both sides. No ability to say both and. Either she is really okay, and therefore we are okay, or she is evil, and therefore this whole march idea is evil. As opposed to, no, you know what, sometimes you get, you do work with people you otherwise don't want to be with, and you don't have to whitewash them, but you still make a case for your involvement with them. Yeah, I mean, I will say that there were definitely some people who responded in that way. There were also plenty of people who went the different route of saying, well, who we call a terror, who we call a terrorist, someone calls an activist, which I found unconvincing in this case. (laughs) And to be honest, I think you bring up a very interesting point and everyone needs to make a decision for themselves. For me, her involvement was a line in the sand as opposed to, you know, I was at the Women's March. I was there for my office reporting from work, but I didn't take any issue with it, even though there were plenty of, you know, a chance of tear down the walls in Israel kind of things. It's because that wasn't an explicit part of the platform. You know, I, I don't assume that in marches that involve, frankly, millions of people around the globe, we're going to agree on all issues. And, uh, but this, her prominent role in the leadership was, was one aspect of it. And then, which actually, it's hard to say what, what, bothered me more as a, as a feminist, but reading through the platform for the international women's strike, which on a side note, I think there's a, a almost as equally concerning issue in that I don't think many participants read the platform. I think there is a separate issue that people don't read and study up on these issues or not, and there's a knee-jerk desire to embrace uh, these topics, um, that it called for the decolonization of Palestine as I believe it was like the bleeding heart of the movement or the beating heart of this movement. Um, And if, and other than the United States, there was no other country mentioned. So it was the United States explicitly criticized Israel implicitly. So by the multiple references uh, to the decolonization of Palestine, Um, or I'd say it's the decolonization. Yeah. I believe there were at least uh, two in there, but that was, that was the issue. And you know, no mention to what's going on in any other part of the world towards women. And that's when Israel is made, is held to a disproportionately high standard. That's putting it kindly, a disproportionately high standard, in my view. Um, That's when I get curious. That's when I (laughs) begin to worry that, okay, so you're singling out just Israel. Why is that? And you know, then it's you know, I do have friends who would say that's that's the red flag that you're heading into maybe anti-Semitic territory. I don't know if I'm ready to jump in with that, but I certainly find it to be uh, unconvincing that you're only bringing up Israel in this issue. And it's when I begin to think, okay, can I support this day? Can I support this movement? It, it's certainly one another one of those places where I begin to draw the line. So, and I want to be clear from before, I'm not suggesting that you reach the wrong conclusion <laughs> no, at no, all. No. I think it was really important <laughs> when you said. By the way, I want to be really honest. I don't know if you reached the right conclusion either. That's what I want to talk about. But you said something I think really profound, that everyone has to reach their own conclusion. And I think that the tension between people feeling they can reach their own conclusion and still being a successful political movement is really hard for people, right? You know, it's in order to be a mass movement, do you need to sign away 
pieces of what you would otherwise say, no, I can't do it. And if that's the case, then we're all kind of in that together, right? And we're going to move forward together, even though we don't necessarily agree about everything. And I do want to come back to that. But I guess I'm curious, because part of what we do here is to try and hear that potentially partial truth or insight from the side we like least. That singling out of Israel, and I'm I'm thin ice here and I want to be careful because I'm not trying to defend what I fundamentally don't agree with, but I do want to hear it with more than a, a, a closed mind. What do you think leads to that singling out of Israel that doesn't immediately say, well, it's because they really are evil or because Israel really, these, you know, these people really are anti-Semitic. Or, Don't go to those extremes. Something gives purchase to what we would agree is at best misguided and maybe a really morally repugnant and dangerous view. But it has purchase in the minds of a lot of decent people. So how does that happen in your experience? So one thing that I do find interesting, and I have, you know, in reading you know, some people's responses to my piece in this overall issue, uh, and, you know, I don't agree with it, but I understand why this view, a lot of people who harbor this view as, as of Israel also harbor a view that the, you know, have a lot of antagonism towards the United States and the United States uh, foreign policy and what it does abroad. And they see, look, I, Israel is a close ally of the United States. Now, why they're directing it towards Israel as opposed to, you know, the UK, I don't, I, that's something I will grapple with. But I certainly, but I think for many people it comes from a place of, I'm opposed to the the United States approach to foreign policy. I see Israel as a close ally. I see Israel as a close beneficiary of what this is not. This is so not my term, but uh, U.S. imperialism, and that is why. And I think that's, you know, if people recognize that more, perhaps people like myself could maybe address those concerns about Israel better. I saw over the list a lot uh, people, I thought this was a bit of a cop-out, but people saying, well, Israel— gets the most U.S. funding. I actually don't believe that's true. I then looked up an article that, yes, Israel receives quite a lot, but it actually isn't the most. And also, you know, there's the issue of Israel does, you know, there's a bit more reciprocal relationship than many countries who get more or close to as much as Israel does. So I, so I found that to be pretty weak. Mm. But they did try to base it more on like a foreign policy argument. And, you know, it was not, and that was how they tried to ground it. And it was not anti-Semitism fueled. It was not, you know, they did not feel like they were cherry picking Israel uh, in that way. Yeah. Yeah, you, Elon, you want to jump in? Do you feel in? like, I mean, it's interesting because you're talking a lot about maybe the logic that they are using, but I wonder if you think that there might be something going on underneath the surface. Like, you know, I tend to wonder, especially now that I've started to speak out more about Trump, for example, how much identity plays into this and psychology and group thinking and these sorts of things were, or tribal thinking maybe would be a better way of putting group it. Group think is a huge problem. I right. mean, I notice it, uh, maybe I wasn't awake to it enough, but no, there's a complete groupthink problem. I, I, frankly, I see it as someone who works in journalism, and I think journalists have an especially strong responsibility to push back against groupthink, and I don't see it happen nearly, nearly enough. But yes, I must say, I saw some logical acrobatics to justify this view uh, rather than, I'd say, you know, they kind of like, oh, we're at this point. Let me figure out how to justify it is how you know, during some of these conversations I've had with people during, frankly, some of the articles I've read in response to this and in trying to tackle this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't been, I'd say, always to me the most 
easy to follow rhetorical approach. That might be the best way to put right. it. It feels of. pretty tortured. And I think you're both right. The identity piece is always present. What I always try and be cognizant of, though, if the identity piece is cog- is present for someone else, it means it's present for me, yeah. too. Right. right? Sure. Which means I always have to ask, are these people who get me as anxious and angry as they are, is it... Because it's so easy to say, you know, they just hate you, or they just hate Israel, or they're just anti-Semites. And it feels too simplistic. At the very least, it's kind of me painting them with the same broad brush. I'm angry at them for painting me or us in. And so I know we have to get past that. And it's the funny thing about groupthink. It's always groupthink when someone else does it, and it's community when we do it. Right? When we do it, it's common cause, and therefore it's good. But when other people do it, it's mindless groupthink. Right? We are a community, they are a mob. And I know there are real differences between what makes a community a community and what makes groupthink or mob think, which I think is what was going on here. And I'm curious, and you're working through this, if you've been able to kind of mark those distinctions, when it's really a group coalescing around a cause, and when it's, wow, you've really given away any critical capacity for decision-making. I think, to be honest, what is a little disconcerting for me is that as much as I think there's a groupthink issue, and there's also related to that, people don't actually read platforms, people may not actually care, they're just excited and swept up, and maybe it's that they're really uh, you know, fearful of Donald Trump or something, and that, that larger concern overtakes any of these other important actual po- policy points and and they think it's stronger to take a stand against that and that's not my view but I do understand that that that's many people's view um but what I think is also important that I must say uh and I also may not be exposed to it enough I do see so even among women who I or I should say people who identify as feminist people who identify as Zionist There's been a lot of grappling on how you navigate it and whether and how, like, what do you negotiate on? What do you what do you what do you do in these situations? I haven't seen that discussion on the larger on the other side. I really haven't. I've been seeing a lot of we don't need to make Zionists comfortable. I get that. But I also would be like, okay, but why do we have to make you feel comfortable? And there's it's just a very frankly, that's what Linda uh, Sarsar said uh, recently. in a speech, I actually... Yeah, we're going to come to her yeah, a little bit later. later I want, uh, but I think you're absolutely right. This I, everyone is always interested when they're activists in, in making people uncomfortable. And what I always beg them to remember is, yeah, because that's your comfort zone. Yeah. In other words, making you or me or you, Elad, or anyone yeah. who's a Zionist uncomfortable for her is part and parcel of being an activist. I get yeah. that. I would just love her to say, making us uncomfortable is her comfort zone. And if it's true that activists or activism is related to discomfort, here's what I know. You want to make other people uncomfortable? What discomfort are you willing to experience? Because until you're willing to experience some discomfort, then you're actually not making me uncomfortable. You're torturing me. That is the difference. If we're in it together and are uncomfortable together, albeit in different ways, that's discomfort. The other is actually using your power of claiming powerlessness to torture me. Yeah, and I think so. That goes back to the heart of the issue that I I do feel like Zionists and yeah, this is a separate issue. There's a spectrum of what you mean by Zionist. You or I should say, I believe there is one base definition of Zionism. But you can be a Zionist for two state solution. You can be a Zionist for the settlements or opposed to the settlement. All these things. Anyone. The point being that anyone who identifies as a Zionist as a Zionist is asked to compromise and sacrifice 
quite a lot. And you know, last week I was part of this really lovely, interesting discussion online through uh, JOFA, Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, um, where uh, it wasn't all women, but I would say it's, and I don't know if everyone even identified as a Zionist on the list. Everyone I would believe identified as a feminist. And we were discussing it. We all had a range of views. Uh, but I remember taking a step back. And even though I didn't agree with everybody and there were some difficult conversations because people had very different visions of how we proceed forward, what we should be willing to compromise on, what we shouldn't. I left it thinking, I don't see this going on on the other side. Mm-hmm. We are really scrutinizing ourselves. We're we're having some very hard debates and discussions. We're trying to figure out what we negotiate on. And the other side is telling us, take it or leave it, baby, get out, which is frankly what I've been told a lot, get out of the movement. Right. Um, and you know, of course, what the logic behind that is, and this is what makes me craziest, is that, you know, Emily, the reason why we have to exercise that kind of nuance is we have power. And, and ultimately, we're just a nicer version of the oppressive hand. The opponent, of course, is the victim. And once I can claim victim status, I have no agency, so I have no moral obligation. And that is the part that makes me nuts because I am almost as concerned personally about the lack of ethics, the lack of moral responsibility that comes from those who claim victim status is I am about those who would w- happily go on being oppressors. The truth is, from my perspective, I'm not saying they're always equal, but at the level of moral accountability, they're no different. They really are no different. And that's exactly what I think you're saying is, where is that on the other side? My analysis is it comes from once I wrap myself in that victim blanket, I have actually not just made myself more comfortable. I have literally insulated myself from moral accountability, from nuance, and from introspection. I think that's certainly part of it. And I think it also, you know, it certainly doesn't just apply to, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. No, it's up and down the board. It's yeah. every cause in the world. By the way, yeah. I'm, I'm the right and left. The thing is huge. People who have, the NRA wraps itself in the same flag. Yeah. If you listen to them talk about it, they would say, my God, the Second Amendment is being destroyed and poor yeah. us, poor gun owner. I mean, I have to say it's, Hard for me to wrap my mind around, but poor us gun owners. Big liberal America wants to take away our constitutionally given rights. I know, but can we talk about the number of kids who were accidentally killed because there's more guns than people in many parts of this country? No. We can't talk about that. Until I'm safe and secure and having my weapons, then we can't talk about that. Well, I mean, it's like, really? so this is another kind of pet interest of mine that you stumbled on. There's been some, know that. Yeah, the, the, the culture of this is, you know, has been discussed in a number of places. I'm, this is not an original thought, but in recent years, especially as we've looked at a lot of the campus protest movements, there is this race to victimhood. It is the ultimate trump card. Uh, of course, I cannot There's remember. There's a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> of course, I cannot remember the two scholars' names now who I interviewed, but they did a study on how we've had this evolution uh, you know, where there is this race to claim victimhood because it gives you a certain immunity. Uh, there, it's very fascinating, uh, and it goes back to the fact that you know, you know, the check your privilege stuff and and all of that, uh, and that you kind of lose your right to speak uh, if you are born or have certain characteristics. And while I do definitely recognize you, know, look, I'm. 
why you shouldn't be talk why you should always I actually feel be talking but why you are not an expert and why you can't speak for someone else's experience of course of course of course of course and I also understand that there is a lot of anger going back decades centuries of hearing people who are not of your group trying to pretend they know what your group is experiencing but that doesn't mean you're not allowed to have thoughts on a topic you should always listen but I think there is also becoming a point where there is this race to claim yourself as the ultimate victim of oppression and therefore give yourself a certain level of immunity. Yeah, and that's exa- it's funny that the word I always use is that victims deserve compensation, but not immunity. They're not the same thing, right? Victims need to be compensated in different ways for past wrongs. And sometimes that's simply being able to tell their story honestly and have it heard. And sometimes it's greater political enfranchisement, and sometimes it's economic. There are a whole bunch of ways. And by the way, we, we all know that, right? That's why we have insurance. If, if, if our house falls down, we need someone to make us whole. Well, if your people has been pushed down, at some point you need to be made whole. But compensation is not the same as immunity. In fact, I would argue the promise of compensation is in place precisely so you won't exercise the call for immunity. Right? Because that call for immunity, I don't know, I'm open to revisiting it, but it seems to me every people that leans too far into that, well, you know, we've had experiences that we, we can't be held accountable for X, Y, Z, ends up doing to others exactly what they believe was done to them. Every single time, every religion, every race, every ethnicity, every cause, right? You wear that garment of victimhood long enough, and it's a sure path, it seems to me, to becoming a victimizer. Yeah, I mean, I was like, I'm trying to raise through my head every group in history to, 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 <laughs> to check that. Um, no, I just find That's more- the beauty of saying things in the moment. You can't. But no, seriously, yeah. I would welcome any, and I'm sure there are exceptions. There always are. But by and large, right, that race to victimhood is a, is a path to justifying victimization. Well, I find it also interesting because although it's not you know, the newest of phenomenon, I have noticed just in terms of scholarship and commentary about it, maybe in the past two to three years, talk of kind of this realization of, of what's going on, that it, how it can be used as a power grab move yeah, uh, I mean, in certain circles, I should say. Particularly, I'm thinking a lot about the college campus right. stuff. I'm not saying this works tremendously well in Congress or right. something. I, well, what I find fascinating about this is it almost, it, to me, it seems like it's backfiring in a very scary way in the sense that you know, we Brad actually wrote an article about this. Uh, like I shared this study that Vox wrote about. You might have seen it. Like where I think it was white evangelicals feel more. They feel like they're more. They feel than the bias against right. white evangelical <clears throat> Christians in America ah, yeah. is you. more profound and right. is more deeply rooted, more d- widely expressed right. than bias against Muslims in America. Right. So what happens is then the people that have more power. And have more of a voice at, when they start to think in that in that way. When that framework of thought starts to enter their minds, it seems to me, and I maybe I'm jumping a few steps, but it does seem to me like then it's used against the victims, and and then it's actually that thinking is actually used by the powerful, um, maybe not uh, purposefully, um, but it does seem to me like that whole dynamic because it's so unhealthy, it can enter anyone's mind. It doesn't have well, to enter an actual victim's mind. Well, when you want to be able to share your thoughts and the only way you get a sort of credence right. is if you claim that you've been, that you're subject to this oppression, then it kind of devolves fast into that. And it's not great. I do, like I think of so many conversations where people kind of do grasp to that to quickly support their point 
or their anger. And I think they, they do feel it because I think it actually does. I've heard, I've heard some people share to me that this whole discussion about feminism and Zionism, particularly those who identify as Zionists. And by the way, I should add what would people who I would consider, you know, J street Zionists, like pretty liberal Zionists felt that this was a moment for them where they realized their liberal progressive allies didn't care what happened to them. And I don't think that's necessarily the right response, but I think it goes back to this issue of maybe if you're expected to, you know, it, it, I think it actually feeds into an identity politics narrative, this victim thing, because you suddenly think everyone is standing up for themselves and not you. And so you've got to rush to defend yourself. And how do you do that? Well, this is the structure we have going on at play. Right. So I want to now take you into the piece and ask you about a couple yeah. of things you wrote specifically. And it was pretty moving. Although I hope this is you, Emily, writing in The Times. Although I hope for a two-state solution and am critical of certain Israeli government policies, I identify as a Zionist because I support Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. Increasingly, I worry that my support for Israel will bar me from the feminist movement that, in aiming to be inclusive, has come to insist that feminism is connected to a wide variety of political causes. So I want to ask you a couple questions here knowing that I'm in deep sympathy, both pragmatically and experientially with what you're describing. And I do appreciate that you recognize you don't have to be a woman to be a feminist. Oh, very uh, much which, so. which is not, you know, not always assumed. Um, that the movement, the feminist movement, is aiming to be inclusive. And doesn't every inclusion or almost every inclusion, also necessitates some exclusion. So I guess what I'm asking is, yes, you, we, may be excluded from this moment of feminism, but is that necessarily a failure? And I'm not really only asking about that movement. Lots of us, especially if we think of ourselves as more open-minded or inclusive or progressive or whatever, I wonder if we're not so good at admitting that our inclusiveness pretty much always still excludes somebody and that maybe it's not ideal, but it's sort of how it is, isn't it? So I think that that as an overall point is probably true. You know, um, you can't welcome everybody. In fact, uh, you're going to have, you know, a certain set of rules. You know, I... I've, I, I can't remember if I spoke in this piece. I've spoken about it in other times the issue of pro-life feminists. Um, I think, and I'd say, and I actually also want to use this as an example of why I think that is relevant. And more re- I think that's a more relevant case, particularly with feminism, where you know, I would argue reproductive rights are a lot more pertinent to the feminist movement. Though, again, I can certainly, I'm, I'm, I personally feel conflicted when I see pro-life feminist groups not allowed to get sponsorship in the women's march, right. even though I'm personally very pro-choice um, and think it is an integral part to the feminist movement. I think it is a case where my vision of feminism doesn't need to be the whole groups and is it worth excluding those people? Those people will be excluded. And, and that is you brought in trying to be inclusive and have a certain set of values. Uh, you can't have everybody. You know, when you stand for everything, you ultimately stand for nothing. Uh, what... I think is problematic here is who they're choosing to kick out because I don't see a direct link to actually caring about women in it. Uh, but are they, and again, this is, it's really complicated. Cause I, 
I'm going to keep saying I am yeah. sympathetic. No. But it's so easy in some way to see why kicking out people you don't agree with makes more sense than being kicked out for something you agree with. Right, and that's that's the rub here. You know, where do we feel that it may be legitimate when even we can't participate? Because for all of our inclusiveness, we know every inclusion does leave someone out, or at least almost every inclusion. And sometimes that means we will be left out, if only temporarily, because this is just one event. And while I'm not defending the conclusion, I think it's, like I said, it's at best intellectually foolish, and at worst, it's morally dangerous. And I do think it's the worst. But I also know there's a piece for us to discuss who claim that, and that is that, okay, so on this round, we lost out. We couldn't be fully included. And maybe that's one of the important lessons of this moment, that no movement, however inclusive it thinks it is, includes everybody. And the way you know you're committed to that is sometimes you're the one left out. I think that can apply to certain cases. I just, with the framework of a movement that really, I do think at the same time, though, there a movement has a core. This, in theory, has a feminist core uh, that would call for the economic, social, political elevation to the point that men and women have equal opportunities, perhaps around the globe, in fact, because this is an international women's strike. This was not by any means just... U.S.-based. Um, and so while I certainly recognize that, yes, inclusivity will eventually, will can't welcome everybody, and that's a reality of it, I think there is still a core problem here in that the groups that they are kicking out uh, don't violate their principle, don't violate what I would consider true core feminist principles of economic, social, political elevation. And in fact, only one group seems to be very kicked out on an international scale. I mean, they kick out, I'd say you know, that a lot of the rhetoric was an anti, what people would call a lean-in feminism. I could see you know, a lot of you know, perhaps female CEOs, corporate executives you know, not being welcomed. And that's part of it too. You know, or um, you know, let's say you were for the Dakota Access Pipeline. That's one I put in there. You yeah. may not be welcomed. You may not be a fan of, look, I know women who identify as feminists who are against uh, changing um, maternity leave laws because they worry it's going to ultimately hinder the hiring of, of female executives if, if, if there are government mandates. Uh, there will be people who are excluded from it. Um, but I think there's just something about when we're talking about an international is issue, and that's how we bring Israel into this, and no other country. And there are, I've listed in other pieces, I could rattle a few here, how the treatment of women is really, truly abhorrent. When Israel is the one called out on only Israel, that, I think that's more, I don't think that's a successful movement. I think you're backbending over your principles to create that. So, you know, I, I do agree. Um, and I think that at some point something becomes so exceptionally lonely and uniformly pointed at, you start to scratch your head and say, you know, I will not only give you the benefit of the doubt, I will go all the way with you. But at some point, I got to ask, really? No, no Sudan? No, no Saudi Arabia? No, no. And 
really? That's that's yeah. never in play for you in any way. It just it does. By the way, I don't have to. You can you can keep hating Israel. I'm not happy about that. But what is it that keeps you up at night about only that particular hatred? Right? Yeah. If you're gonna go angry then have an animating principle that's angry across the board. And if yeah. you're not, then we're left scratching our heads. So I do get that. I want to go on with something you continue to write about. This insistence, meaning the idea that you can't be Zionist and be on the inside of at least this experience, can alienate feminists like myself, this is you writing, who don't support all the causes others believe should be part of feminism. And you talked before about this core definition of feminism. And I wonder if there are ways in which fighting about what the core definition is, and by the way, I think this is going on in America about Americans. I think this is going on in lots of different faith communities. What is the core, right? I think it's not surprising that's going on in feminism. I wonder if in some way these fights about what the core is are actually a mistake. Because in almost every instance I know, when people define the core, it looks remarkably like them. I'm sure I do this too. And then the other is somehow peripheral. And I wonder if instead of looking for where the core is, we asked very pragmatically, at any given moment, with whom can I be in relationship and how? And then all of a sudden, you might have been on the outs of this particular event, but back in with some other event later, because it wouldn't have been about how this is a symbol for the core of feminism or how any given Jewish practice is a sign of the core of Judaism or where you go to church is a sign of your fierce attachment to what it means to be Christian or how you vote on an issue in America means you are, quote, real American or not. And instead, we simply ask, where pragmatically could we get something done together as opposed to I'm in or I'm out I'm in or I'm out at any given moment on any given issue, but I'm never defined by that. You know, I think part of the problem at play uh, is that there's this uh, huge thrust in a lot of movements, including feminism, towards intersectionalism. And that movement, that view says that you need to embrace these issues to be a feminist. Or actually, I felt... That, I, that was the sense I had, but I wasn't sure. And then actually the response I've gotten is, no, no, you're right. If you don't agree on all these issues, you, you should leave. And that embrace, and by the way, I don't, you had intersectionality, the original, you had academic uh, theory of that was not necessary to be applied in such a way that it means that if you don't subscribe to all these views, you shouldn't join this movement. It was meant to give a better approach that, you know, your experiences as uh, a woman a white woman is different from a black woman, different from a disabled woman, different from uh, a lesbian right. it woman. It was additive, not definitive. Yeah. Somehow it was meant to be an inclusion became an orthodoxy in and the narrowest sense of the word. Also to understand how there is a range of experiences within and how we need to be aware of it. Uh, and I think that you know, being aware and you're not making sure that feminism just spoke for white college-educated women is a very, very important right. thing. And in that way, intersectionality is great. And to make sure that people understand that there are these overlapping identities that pose their own sets of challenges and change your experience. But I do think what's tough to go up against now is that it has been embraced as this larger thrust to meld every movement together under the umbrella. And and actually, um, not to go off in too different of a direction, but Katha Pollitt at The Nation wrote a great piece recently that was about, does every issue need to be 
a feminist issue. That doesn't make it any less of a legitimate issue. And I think there aren't enough people saying that, you know, you can care about environmentalism. And yes, you can argue that you care about environmentalism because you're a feminist, but is that needed? And do you need to put that in there to get other people who I who are worried about you know, the wage gap or other you know, I keep going back economic social political opportunities for women to jump on board with envi- with your approach to environmentalism as well because uh, when you try to link up everything it may not work that smoothly right or it forces what I think you really identified and experienced is that it necessarily silences a piece of who you are either we are all in this all together all the time on all things or you're out. And it's so ironic to me that in the name of a movement at its best, feminism, which was about trying, in my view, to undermine the false dichotomies and the unhealthy binaries which help people from becoming all of who they wanted to be, ends up embracing instead, yes, it killed one whole set of dichotomies and binaries and now finds itself replacing them with a whole new set. And so in the end, are we really better off? In the short term, yeah, a lot of good is accomplished. But in the long term, if you can be in the position you're in, I would say that the long-term benefits of this movement are really in question. And I don't say that lightly or happily. I say it knowing that if in the end we simply shatter one set of rigid rules and expectations to replace them with another equally rigid set of rules and expectations, I think all we've done is changed who sits in what chair at the same table. So there's a new oppressed and a new oppressor, but we actually haven't changed the calculus of oppression. I think even you know, there's a pragmatic problem, which I do think there's a concern that we're going to have you know, just a, do, a different expectation of we're going to keep going back and forth the oppressed oppressor if we keep putting people into those boxes. And by the way, I do think there are certainly geopolitical situations where looking at things in that right, It's not that you're saying it doesn't exist, but if that's if it's the old Mark Twain life, all you've got is a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. If all you've got is those two categories and you don't want to be one of them, you're going to put everyone in that yeah. box and you'll be the other one. And yeah, and I think also just pragmatically, I mean, this is a separate frustration. Um, you know what I see? You know what? some really tremendous work being done to organize against, you know, when you know, the, when it was on the table for Planned Parenthood to be defunded, I saw some really concrete, great steps being taken to combat that. I think when you make it, you know, it's so broad under this intersectional umbrella, I'm not sure what are the best pragmatic steps or how you go to achieve all those things. And a lot of it is more, I'd say, ideals and aims. Like, for example, the decolonization of Palestine. A lot of my peers were simply, what does that mean? Like, I'm not, so I'm like, if I'm saying I'm for a two-state solution, do I count as someone calling for the decolonization of Palestine? Uh, you know, Linda Sarsar would maybe say no, but uh, other people would maybe say yes. Right. I, It's relying on a lot of, I think, convoluted language that, you know, just from a purely pragmatic perspective of someone who would like to see things get done— I'm not sure it translates. Right. It's just not that simple. And that example of decolonization is perfect. I'll never forget being with a, traveling with a group of uh, progressive Christian leaders in Israel and in the occupied territories. And yeah, I'm calling them that. Um, and at some point we met with some Palestinian leaders and they wanted to make it very, very clear that they're not opposed to Jews or to Judaism, uh, but only to the occupation. 
leave aside the part of the story in which I actually got attacked in that place, and no one knew what my politics were at all. They just knew I was a guy wearing a head covering and had a beard, and as far as they were concerned, I was fair game. But call that the exception. What was interesting was he told the group a story about his family being occupied and the village they were from. Let the story unfold. We get back on the bus later, and I pointed out to them, I said, I want to ask the group a question. I want you to give whatever answer feels authentic to you. Who here is opposed to the occupation? And every hand on the bus went up, including my own. I said, now, here's what I need you to know when we answer that. The village that he's describing is occupation, that he was the occupation drove his family out of, was not part of Israel as a result of the 1967 Six-Day War, right? It's not in, call it Judea and Samaria, the occupied territories. It's not there. In fact, that village is not even in the sovereign state of Israel according to the 1949 Armistice Agreement that was signed at the end of the war at the founding of the state. That village was included in what the United Nations Partition Plan for Israel and Palestine in November of 1947 gave to the Jewish people as a future state of Israel. If that village is occupied territory, and I was very clear that you can claim that. I don't. You can claim that. Understand, your stand against occupation is a stand in favor of the full dissolution of the state of Israel. And frankly, I would rather you say that to me if that's what you believe. I'll still talk to you. Uh, It's going to be a hard conversation, but I'll still have the conversation. But occupation, colonization, like what decent person that we hang with and say, yeah, I'm in favor of that. Everyone says no to that, right? But now you got to tell me what you mean by it. Because I have no doubt that you are both a proud Zionist, a serious Zionist, and also opposed to colonization, right? And I think this is where this language, so it leads me to a very pragmatic question that I want to ask you. Oh, boy. Can anyone be fully committed to part of a cause? Because I feel like all this conversation is leading us to that question. Can you be fully committed to a part of a cause or be excluded from any particular moment in that cause and still say, but I'm still in it. I, well, that, yes. Look, I hope I made it clear in, this, in that piece that no, I could not support the international women's strike. Uh, and as these issues come out, when it's, you know, and it, when it's an explicit part of a platform, when it's an explicit part of the leadership, I'm going to have to think long and hard uh, on both sides. You know, if, if there was a, I was just going to say, I, I think of Israel as actually a pretty great country for, for feminists. I'm sure that comment alone will get me a lot of backlash. But if there was, if someone puts forth a Zionist platform that I think calls, you know, for oppression towards women, that, you know, it violates what I think are, go back to, I, and I know that's probably economic, social, political opportunities, but <laughs> let's be clear. Let's say it says, and, you know, part of the Zionist resolution is going to be to, uh, limit women's educational opportunities, limit their access to abortion and contraception. You know, these are just a few examples. Um, not protect them from you know, wage disparity. I'm not going to support that either. Um, I do think it's an important thing, and I think I've, I've had this, I just haven't articulated that just because I don't agree with this 
event uh, and any of and, and I shouldn't say any like yet future events. I'm going to have to figure out what's my my litmus test for me personally supporting or not. I'm still very much a proud feminist. Uh, I I care about it quite a lot. I think it's an important movement. I would like to see it. Um, in I mean I I wish you know, and talking about this this issue. It made me realize how much I wish fem- feminism did talk about you know girls in Afghanistan who have acid thrown on them for trying to go to schools. Um, you know. Frankly, women in the Palestinian territories who who have very high rates of domestic who face very high rates of domestic violence, um, and who don't have access to a lot of the healthcare opportunities that women in the United States and other part of the world do. I think those are important issues that we should be talking about, um, and I hope the movement will do that. I think it's really. I mean, I I, I had a hope that you were going to say that, yeah. and I think it's really important that it be heard because taking a principled stand against one moment doesn't mean you don't have at least as profound and proud a stand in favor of the larger cause. And ironically, it seems to me, you got hurt by precisely people who should understand that the best and understand it the least. So I'm going to violate a little bit of a rule, oh boy. which is to talk about someone who's not in the room, or at least quote her who's not in the room, because I, I want to give her the credit of you know of the best possible view, and that's Linda Sarsour, who said a couple of things in response to your writing that's separate from the whole Zionist piece. It's about this capacity to be all in, but sometimes on the outside, or to be fully in on only a part of the project. And she, in an interview in The Nation, you either stand up for the rights of all women, including Palestinians, or none. There's just no way around it. And I was like, my God, that's exactly the kind of essentialist thinking that would have destroyed feminism as a movement, right? You either stand for the family or you don't. You either stand for decency and, and taking care of men or, or every possible argument that was an all-in or all-out. And I am sure if I said to you, do you believe and stand for the rights of Palestinian women? You would say? Of course. What did I just mention there? Right. <laughs> That's what's so maddening to me. And I get it. I am biased. I admit it. I am a proud Zionist. Mm. So I understand I can only read her through my eyes. But there's something just off about that. And then she continues, I would say that anyone who wants to call themselves an activist cannot be selective. To which I would say, then why did you select to make anti-Zionism a part of feminism? Here, I'm not even asking, are you right or you're wrong? It's pretty clear I think she's completely wrong. Okay, maybe I'm the idiot and I'm wrong. But don't you dare say you can't be selective when you're the selector in chief. So, yes, I'd say what bothered me the most that it is not even the call for for all or nothing. Um, That did not bother me nearly as much as the hypocrisy that uh, and she has repeated that a similar sentiment Uh, that she doesn't recognize the blatant exceptionalism she has for her own bias and allegiance uh, and thrust it on other people uh, that they may must meet her standard or they're out. Uh, sh- it goes back to something that we talked about a little earlier, that I don't see that internal grappling on that side about how do we make this work? Do we sit out this movement? Do we come out another time? Do we go with this because we think it's more important? I think there are many smart people who say, I think it's more important for me as a Zionist even strategically, to be at this table than to to sit it out. And I think that's a very compelling argument. Um, but no, it was the blatant hypocrisy. Uh, and 
among other things in that uh, article that in that interview that that rankled me um, <laughs> and that disappointed me. I should say. I mm. I mean my uh, my piece in the New York Times doesn't mention her once because I don't I did not think up until then she was someone I necessarily needed to bring into this debate. I had a problem with the platform and I had a problem right. with Rosmea Oda. Um, I did not. You know, I was. Right. It wasn't personal for you, but that's the same thing. When you're an all-or-nothing person, everything is personal because it's all about you. And for you, and I, it wasn't about that. It was an idea. So let me. When I have to wrap yeah. up, and I and I don't want to let you go without asking you a question because you modeled something in the last month and in this conversation that I think we all, wherever we are, need help with. And you talked about the ability to wrestle with things. So if you were going to give one piece of advice to anyone listening, based on your experience, what sustains your ability to hang in there and wrestle and to exist in that complicated place of, I'm a feminist who's sometimes upset about the feminist movement. I'm a Zionist who's sometimes upset about what the state of Israel does, but I'm not giving up on either. I think a big thing is don't let anyone, including the leaders of a movement, uh, the people who, because, you know, leaders are temporary, set, define your identity for you. Uh, and to step outside of it and to think about what works for you, for you personally and how you're going to approach each of these things. You know, and just, and to realize that, you know, as you brought up, just because you may sit out one element or one event in this movement doesn't mean you're you're against everything that the movement is doing. Um, I think that's really important. I, I must say also, and look, this is where my bias is coming in. I heard from so many young women on college campuses who said that they were silenced and afraid to speak up about their support for Israel and that it was, and that reading this piece helped them talk about it, that I would say also, listen, 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 but don't be afraid to speak out too. Um, if you think of think about your words, listen to what other people are saying, but don't be afraid to talk out. You will have more support than you realize. And it goes back to that idea of don't follow the group necessarily. Think about in that moment what you can pick and choose and be supportive of. It's great advice. It's what we're here to do. That is how Echo Chambers got cracked. You did it. You lived it. You wrote about it. You talked about it. It was really a pleasure to have you. Emily Shire, you can find out more about what she's writing and thinking at bustle.com. And I hope we'll have you back in cracking the Echo Chamber sometime soon. I would be absolutely honored. Thank you so much. I'm Brad Hirschfield. Until next time. Collecting the clues when I was running, trying to fill my own shoes. And now I'm like...